written um, to a specific person. First John was written to a, a number of churches in Asia Minor. Second John was written, as we studied that, in uh, Second John, it was written to a specific church, I believe. It's referred to as an, the elect lady, but I think it was a specific church in Asia Minor. And as we come to Third John, it is a personal letter that is written to a specific individual. And uh, it's like the book of Philemon, where Paul wrote that letter specifically to a man. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes you like to read other people's mail. <laughs> Maybe you don't, but I'm nosy, I guess. But what we're doing as we read Third John is we're able to read a letter that was written by John to a man named Gaius. And uh, we're able to see... Uh, what he had to say to him, and it really is a letter that is for us as well. There's instruction, there's encouragement that we find here, and uh, 2 Timothy reminds us that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. So all, all scripture is to that end, and so it is with 3 John. So we want to consider the author and the recipient of the letter. This is like First and Second John. It is written by John, of course. But the way in which he introduces himself in this letter is he says, the elder. This is what we found in Second John, the elder. And I believe that these to whom John was writing in second, First, Second, and Third John, they all knew who this John was because he had a, such a, an impact upon their life and their, mini, uh, their churches. And, and they knew him in a personal way. And so it is in this situation. And as we've already seen, John is at the latter end of his life. This book was probably written between 85 and 95 AD. All of the other apostles have most likely passed from the scene. He's the last standing apostle. And uh, he is now writing this letter And it comes uh, with apostolic authority. He is one who has been an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. He is one who heard Jesus preach and teach, and he followed him. And he was commissioned by Christ as an apostle, as one sent out, commissioned by him, and given what we call apostolic authority to speak on behalf of Christ. And so his words are, as it were, the words of Christ to the people of God. And uh, we see John in the book of Acts. We see Peter and John, two of the key figures, as the book of Acts opens up. It is Peter who preaches at Pentecost. But we see John right alongside with him in chapters 3 and 4 as uh, there is a healing of a lame man. And uh, John is there with Peter. They are preaching and declaring primarily to the Jews about the, the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But John is going to kind of fade out of the book of Acts, and uh, Peter goes on and ministers, and then also Paul becomes one of the primary people in the book of Acts. But John kind of fades away in the book of Acts, and it is John who probably most likely was the one who went up into Asia Minor, what is known as Turkey today. And this is where he, in the latter years of his life and ministry, predominantly ministered. Uh, History and church tradition uh, 
says that John um, probably had planted the seven churches that are mentioned in the book of Revelation. Um, There are seven of them that are listed. They're all there in Asia Minor. And he personally knew these people that he wrote about in the book of Revelation. And he also may have been the one that planted those churches or at least had a part in that. When Paul, on his missionary journey, comes to the city of Ephesus in Acts 19.1, when he arrives there on his second missionary journey, there's already believers that are there that have heard the gospel. And uh, so it is probably John who was instrumental in bringing about the establishment of these churches. And now in the latter years of his life, he is writing these letters. Probably at this time, he also wrote the Gospel of John. So John is the author of this. Who is the recipient? Well, here it is a specific individual. His name is Gaius. Some people refer to him as Gaius. Um, I like Gaius, so that's the pronunciation I'm going to be using. And uh, Gaius is a very common name. It was a very common name in the first century. If you go to grocery stores or somewhere, you might find these books, baby names. Uh, if you're having a baby, you might uh, look through there and see what's the, what's the favorite names in our day. Well, in this day, in the first century, there was a list of 18 names that were prominent names. If you were going to name your Roman son, uh, you were going to name him something, there were 18 names that were very prominent. Some of those were like Marcus and Titus, Lucius. But at the top of the list, the first one was this name, Gaius. So it's not surprising as we come to the New Testament, we find there are four Gaiuses in the New Testament. And uh, Paul speaks about a Gaius of Macedonia. We see him in Acts 19.29. He was a traveling companion with Paul. He was one that was caught up in the riot in Ephesus. You remember that the idol makers were upset about this gospel that is calling people to turn away from their idols. And they were burning their idols and all their witchcraft stuff. And, And they're upset about this. And so Gaius is one who was caught up and arrested. Uh, Thankfully, his life was preserved uh, in the midst of that riot. Then there's a Gaius of Derby. He's mentioned in Acts 20, verse 4. He was a traveling companion as well with Paul. Um, Then there's a Gaius of Corinth. Paul said that he had baptized him. He had only baptized a few there, and one of them was Gaius. And it was Gaius who opened his home and hosted Paul, And it was Gaius who probably in his home also had the church. And that's mentioned in Romans 16.23 as Paul's writing to the Romans uh, church at Rome from Corinth. He mentions Gaius. He salutes you. As we come to 3 John, we're removed now three decades from these other uh, men that are mentioned. And we are in Asia Minor. And here is this Gaius that is referred to by John. There probably is no relationship to these other Gaiuses. The only thing that we know about this Gaius who is in Asia, um, in, the, in the Asia Minor, all, the only things that we know about him is what we find in first, or excuse me, third John. So some of the things that we see is that he's a beloved friend of John. John knows him well. We'll see that in his introduction. 
He's a fellow believer. He's a Christian. And he may have been Paul's, or excuse me, John's convert. Notice verse 4. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. And this is a reference here um, to, uh, to Gaius. He's, he's walking in the truth. And, and I have great joy to see my children walking in the truth. Now, he, he speaks of others as his children, uh, but it may be that this is one of his converts. Um, so, so as we look at him, we see that he's a very friendly, kind, and a very generous um, man. And uh, we'll see this in the weeks to come. It is also very possible that he was a church leader, that he was an apostle, or that he was an elder in the church where he served. And what we're going to see is a contrast between this man Gaius and this man Diotrephes. And uh, there's a, a great difference between them. But what we find in Gaius is one who is worthy of our emulation uh, as believers in our own day. So next we want to consider the structure and the purpose of the letter. It's a personal letter. These epistle, this epistle is a personal letter to this individual. And this epistle is, again, it's common just as Second John was. It's common to how they wrote a letter in the first century. It has a greeting, and it mentions the writer, the recipient, has the main body of the text, and then it has a, a closing. And in this very short letter, what we find John doing is encouraging this brother. He needs some encouragement. He needs some instruction. So we see John, the shepherd, coming alongside of this son in the faith, and wanting to encourage him and to give instruction, specifically with regard to some things that were going on with regard to diatrophies. But we also sense his apostolic authority. He's the elder, he's the shepherd, but he's also one that has apostolic authority. And he says to, John, uh, to, to this man, Gaius, these are some things that you need to do, things to be aware of. And so in this epistle, we see a commendation of this man, Gaius. He is one that is walking in the truth, and he's one that's facing some trouble, and so he gives encouragement to him, and he's going to command him to to imitate what is good. In contrast to that, we have this man, Diotrephes, and where there is commendation that is given to Gaius, there's condemnation that is given to this man, Diotrephes. And so as we look at this book, there are three men that are mentioned. One is Gaius, and his response to the truth is he's an upholder of the truth. Then there is Diotrephes. He's an an arrogant opponent of the truth. And then there's a third man just briefly mentioned, and his name is Demetrius in verse 12. And he's a living testimony of and for the truth. So we want to begin at the opening salutation that John gives in verse 1. The elder elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Here is this man who is a dear friend of his. He uses this word, beloved or dear friend, four times in this little short epistle, verses uh, 2, 5, and 11, and also here in verse 1. And we might ask, what makes this to be so in the Christian body? 
What is it that makes relationships to be something that are like friendships, deep friendships, where, where he says, you're my beloved, I, I love you. Well, we know that there is great differences between these two men. Uh, John is from Galilee. He's a Jew. Gaius most likely is a Gentile. He's living in Asia Minor. They have different backgrounds, different cultures. And what we see here is that the love is something that is based upon not common things that they have in their individual lives, but it's based upon the truth. Notice that he says that, whom I love in truth. It is the truth, it is the gospel that knits the hearts of God's people together. This gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, his person, his work, it is that which becomes the bond that glues the people of God together. At least it should do that. So truth was the sphere in which this love existed and flourished between John and Gaius. It's a love that is a reflection of the revelation that God has given in his word. It is a love that reflects the very kind of love that has been shown to them by God himself. He has been merciful and kind and gracious and he has loved them. And therefore they seek to reflect their God in loving one another. And thanks be to God for the relationships that we can know in Christ and know in the gospel with one another from people that were really different. And this is one of the blessings of the body of Christ. We might grow in that. I pray that we may grow in that. And so for us, this is what we are called to, a love that exists and flourishes in the sphere of the truth of the gospel. And then we see in verse 2, here is a prayer. And this would be common in a letter. You wish something for the one that you're writing to. Uh, you give them a greeting. As, uh, and, and here is his prayer or his wish for, the, for him. He says, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. This word prosper is just, just the idea of, of doing well, for his well-being. The word that is here used, a Greek word, means a good road or a good journey. And literally, it would be used of someone that is on a journey, and they have a prosperous journey, a safe journey, a prosperous journey. Uh, my wife and I just got back from vacation, and we're thankful we had a prosperous journey. It was a wonderful time to be away and to relax somewhat, and uh, it was a good, a good journey. But it's also used metaphorically, as it is here, and it's the idea of to, to prosper in one's life, to become, to have well-being. We might think of the Old Testament word shalom, well-being, to be in a state of well-being, and this is something that he is praying for him. But not only that, he says, I also pray that you will prosper in all things and be in health. Now, it may be that Gaius was not in good health. It may have been that he was a sickly man. We don't know that for sure, but he's praying this for him. I pray that you may be in good 
health. You may prosper and that you may be in good health. And so often when we write a letter, we write something similar to that. As we write, we might say something, I hope this letter finds you well, doing well. And this is what John is writing for this brother whom he loves. But notice how he states this. When he talks about him prospering and being in health, I'm praying that this will be true of you in your physical life just as your soul prospers. He's gotten word that Gaius is a man who has been walking in the truth. He's been serving. He's doing well spiritually. And he says, I want you, and I'm praying for you, that in your life, that you will be prospering just as you are prospering spiritually. I want to ask you the question, if we would think about our own life, would our well-being, our prosperity, as it were, if we compared that to how we're doing spiritually, would that be a good thing for us? <laughs> Something to think about. Could John, pray that for me, that I pray that you are prospering and in good health just as you are prospering spiritually. But this is how he prays for this man. Just as you're doing so well spiritually, I'm praying for that in your physical life as well and in your health, that you would just prosper and be in a good, good place. So here is this prayer that he has for his brother. And uh, John Stott says, there is a biblical warrant here for de- de- desiring both the physical as well as the spiritual welfare of our Christian friends. I want you to do well. Physically, spiritually, I want you to be doing well. And we can pray to that end. And uh, so he prays for this man. But we see also thirdly here John's occasion for great rejoicing. As he's writing to this beloved brother, friend, he's been caused to rejoice. And not just rejoice, but to rejoice greatly, he says, verse For I rejoice greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you just as you walk in the truth. There are these probably itinerant preachers or missionaries that have gone out that John is familiar with, maybe from his church, and they have returned back. And they said, we met your friend Gaius, and we want you to know he is doing well. And we testify to that. We bear witness to that. We've watched him. We've seen him. And as we've observed his life, we want you to know that he is just doing well. And John, as he has gotten this report, he says, I, I greatly rejoice in this. I'm so thankful for this. He's walking in the truth. And notice he says this truth. They have testified of the truth The New King James says that is in you. Other translations uh, have that he's walking in truth or uh, that that he is faithful to the truth. But this idea is that there's this truth that is a part of his very life. The the word of God, the gospel is a, a part of his very life and how he is living. It's a part, it's an inward, it's inward in his life. His word, the word of God is in his heart, in his thinking, in how he is living. 
Here the seed of the gospel has fertile, found fertile ground in the life of John. And uh, so this truth is part of his spiritual DNA. And it affects the whole of his life. And therefore, as a result of that, he says, just as you walk in the truth. This truth is in him. And this truth is coming out of him and reflecting in his life how he is living. So the truth was something a part of his thinking, was a part of his life, but it also was something that was manifested through his life and the various ways in which he had ministered. And so truth will do that, won't it? God regenerates a person. He gives us understanding about spiritual realities. He gives us truth to to know and to understand, and then that truth is to bear fruit in our lives as we abide in the vine. And so he says, he is one who is, they they said to John, he's one who's walking in the truth. This is a New Testament metaphor that we find often about how we live our life. It's like walking, just as we might be on a journey going somewhere, going in a certain direction, walking in the truth or Walking in the spirit is this idea of walking in a direction, walking in a way that is pleasing to the Lord, that is according to his word. So it regulates, this truth regulates one's life, one's conduct. So the whole manner of life that one lives is by walking in the truth. Now, certainly none of us do that perfectly. But this is the goal. This is the desire of the believer, that I will walk in the truth, in the revelation that God has given to us. We would walk in the narrow road by God's grace. So when you look at John, you see there's no, or not Gaius, when you look at his life, there was no uh, dichotomy between his profession, what he said he believed, and how he lived his practice. So there's a direct correspondence, isn't there, between our creed and our conduct. And so these things go together, and we see in Gaius a well-balanced life. This truth that has affected him has affected how he lives, how he conducts himself, and it's going to be seen as we go through this epistle. And notice verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. This just got John excited and grateful, thankful for this brother who is walking in the truth. One of his children, he is very thankful for this. And how we can identify that if we see our children walking in the truth. We are thankful to God for that. And so it was here for this child in the faith. He was very thankful. It delighted him. And I might say as a pastor and we as elders, it delights us, greatly delights us too. When we see our people walking in the truth, and I'm thankful to see that in so many ways among our body. And so here is this salutation that is given by John, this greeting that is given to him, and he gives to Gaius this greatest, highest compliment. It just thrills me to see you walking 
in the truth. Now, the question we might ask ourselves just in closing is this. What would those who are near to me say about my life if I profess to be a believer, if I profess to be a follower of Christ? What would my associates, my friends, my co-workers maybe, my fellow church people, would they be able to say that about me? You know, as I observe your life, I am I'm greatly thankful and I greatly rejoice to see you walking in the truth. Well, I pray that by God's grace, more and more, that they will be able to say that about me and about us. That we are those who seek to walk in the truth of the word of God and what God has called us to do. And again, I'm thankful to see that at Bible Chapel. Some people living in some hard places, facing some difficult things. Some living in some unseen places and dealing with things that no one knows about, but seeking to walk in the truth. I want to close with this word from First Timothy. And Paul, as he is writing to young Timothy, he says this in chapter 4. He says, don't let anyone despise your youth. Be an example to the believers in word and conduct and love and spirit in faith and in purity. And then he says, give attention to the reading of the word. Don't neglect the gift that is in you. And then he says this, verse 15, meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all that your progress may be evident to all, that we continue to grow in grace, and that others, it will be evident to them that we are making progress in grace. And may God, by his grace, make us to be such a people as that. I invite you to take your hymn book and turn, if you will, to hymn number 175. We're going to sing that in a moment, and um, then we, before we do, we're just going to spend just a few minutes just preparing our hearts as we come to the Lord's table, and I would invite you maybe to just read on the front of your bulletin these words of Isaiah 53, and think of the one who loved us, who gave himself for us, who was despised and rejected of men, man of sorrows and suffering. So let us just prepare our hearts together as we come to the Lord's table. Lord and our God, we thank you today for the gospel, the truth of the gospel, Son of God who became man, who dwelt among us, who lived a holy, righteous life, who willingly laid down his life for his people and bore their sin, was raised again on the third day as ascended above. We come today with joyful hearts to remember him, to think upon him and what he has done for us. 
Lord, may Christ be lifted up. May he be honored today as we come to the Lord's table. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Let's stand together, and we're going to sing together number 175. We're going to sing verses 1 through 4, and then we'll sing the last verse after we conclude the Lord's Supper.